for our, our graduates. And I do hope you'll be able to make it this evening, and we'll be just taking a little bit more time after the service tonight to just congratulate them and to, uh, to just let them know that we support them as a, as a church family. We're going to be in Ephesians 6, uh, verses 1 to 4, both this morning and next Sunday. I'm doing this on purpose because next Sunday, as you know, um, is Mother's Day. And I thought it would be a good idea for us to actually be talking about, you know, the family and the home as uh, we come to Mother's Day. And it just so happens in our study of Ephesians, we're coming right up to this section of Scripture that deals with parents and children. And so we're going to linger here a little bit longer than we normally do. We're going to take a couple of weeks on four verses. And I think you will see as we get into this, there's a lot more here in these four verses than initially meets the, initially meets the eye. Just to get a sort of a, uh, a sense of the context, we're going to back up to Ephesians 5 and read coming into this, because remember, chapter divisions, verse divisions, they're not part of the inspired text. Definitely help us find stuff in the Bible, but sometimes they can d- divide what we are, uh, the, the thought that the apostle is giving to us. So we're going to begin back in Ephesians 5, verse 15, and we're going to read down to Ephesians 6 and verse 9, because this is really one unit of thought that the apostle is giving to us. So beginning in Ephesians 5, verse 15. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Remember, the second half of Ephesians is using this idea of walking, of living our daily lives to structure the, the, the bones, if you will, um, of these chapters. So he said, walk, walk in wisdom. Live this life that's marked by wisdom according to God's word. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So this idea of walk in wisdom involves being filled with the Spirit, and it has these effects of changing our relationships. Now, speaking of relationships, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, husbands, you don't get off the hook. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church." For we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And if you missed last week's message, you go back and listen to it as we study that text. But now moving on from the relationship between husbands and wives, spirit-filled relationships, relationships marked by walking in wisdom, we now move to another set of relationships. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Another relationship. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free, and ye masters." Do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. Reading that whole section, because the verses we're looking at fall into a larger section that's saying, live a life that is marked by being filled with the Spirit, and that involves right submission within our relationships. Not just husbands and wives, but now moving into talking about parents and children. Parenting books are are really big business. Uh, I did a quick look on on Amazon to say parenting books, just sort of narrowing down sort of the the parameters of the search. 
And Amazon spat out 60,000 titles of parenting books. Um, now, I like to read, but nobody's got time for that, right? 60,000 books is more books than any of us will read in a lifetime, probably more books than all of us combined in this room will read within our lifetime. Now, some of these books will call for a crackdown on misbehavior and for authoritative parenting. Others celebrate children as wild and free. Some call for gentle parenting, and every month a a new parenting philosophy comes out that's supported by the latest and the best research and the the word of the experts. You add to that the explosion of words that the Internet age has brought to us. Right? It used to be if you wanted books and and information, you'd go to the library or you would send off or something in a catalog. Now with the Internet, anybody with an Internet connection can start a blog or can post on Facebook or make videos on YouTube or put something up on TikTok to give their opinion on parenting. Bloggers, YouTubers, influencers, podcasters, they provide a Niagara Falls-like cascade of parenting advice and strategies. So what are we to do within this? We're almost drowning in a sea of advice and contradictory information, and you should do timeouts. No, you should, you should spank, and no, you should feed your kids organic. No, 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 you should send them to school. No, no, you need to do this, and no, you need to... All of these different ideas. What are we to do with all of this information? How do, we, how do we filter that out? How do we know as parents how we should be teaching our children? Now, by the way, those of you who are like, oh, good, I'm, I'm a grandparent, I can check out, I don't need to hear anything else because I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Um, well, your kids are going to be getting married and having grandkids, and you are positioned to be uniquely influential in their lives. You have the ability to say, hey, not everything that I did was, was a good idea, Here's some things that I have learned through wisdom and experience. Here's what I have learned as I have studied the Word of God. How then should we live? How then should we parent? Do we need to read all 60,000 of those parenting books in order to be able to do it correctly? Do we need to keep up with the latest psychology and the advice of every podcast and blog? You know, we're aliens to invade this earth and uh, to sort of look at the book titles and, and, and what we're doing. They would come to the conclusion, conclusion that parenting is this impossible task that nobody really knows what they're doing. And, and it's, it requires like a Ph.D. of information to carry out. They would sort of look at our history and marvel. How on earth did the species survive without TikTok? How on earth did parents keep their kids alive without all of the latest books? Like, how, how, wow, this is amazing. They would conclude that the most complex task ever to face humanity would be raising children. So what do we do? I think Solomon had a good word of wisdom when he says, of the making of books there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. Nothing against parenting books. I read them. I learn from them. I'm, I'm a big fan of books. I give out parenting books. But in this deluge, in contrast to this deluge of human words and opinions, stands God's word. What we have before us in Ephesians 6, 1 to 4 is the most complete, comprehensive parenting guidance that we have in all of Scripture. It's just four verses. We've got 60,000 books, hundreds of thousands of pages, and then we have four verses. You know, could it be that maybe we have overcomplicated the task of parenting? Could it be that we have put so much weight on the assumption that if I don't parent my kids perfectly, they're going to be failures and it's going to be my fault? Could it be that maybe kids are more resilient than we give them credit for and God's grace is greater than we ever imagined? Could it be that it's not actually up to us, it's actually up to God and we're just instruments in his hands? We get here in the original language a mere 35 words that are directed to children and a mere 16 words directed to parents. It's amazing. The brevity and yet the depth that is here. And every one of these words is like a hyperlink of its own that you can click on, and it opens up like a whole book. Don't don't read these four verses and equate the brevity of this with shallowness. These are very, very tightly packed words that we're going to take two weeks to unpack and see all that God has for us. Instead of giving us a step-by-step strategy and a moment-by-moment nap time schedule, Ephesians 6, 1-4 gives us broad principles that apply to every culture. See, here's the thing about so many parenting books is they, they speak to a very narrow culture and a time and a place. God's word is transcultural. You could pick up Ephesians 6, 1-4 in the jungles of Papua New Guinea and say, here's how you should parent your kids. 
You could take this in the first century in the city of Ephesus with all of its immorality and the temple of Diana and all the stuff going on and be like, here's how you should parent. You could take this through the Middle Ages and say, here's how you should parent. You could take it to the year 2023 in the United States of America with all of the stuff we have going on and say, this still works. This is still what God wants us to be doing. Now, I'll just say this. Godly parenting is important, but it is not decisive. It matters, but a whole lot less than we think. There's many heathen who had godly upbringings, and many, many godly people who had heathen upbringings. So parents, my, what I want to say here to you is trust God, obey his word, and leave the results up to him. All right, so let's just take a quick overview of this, and then we're going to dive in. What we're going to be doing this week and next week is extracting 10 parenting principles from these four verses. We'll do four of them this week, six of them next week. But overall, look at the, look at the big picture of this. Verses 1 to 3 are speaking to children. So three verses to children, and then verse 4 is speaking to fathers. This fits the pattern of what Paul is doing throughout the section. He speaks to wives who are under the headship of their husband, and then he speaks to the husbands. Here he speaks to the children, and then he speaks to the parents. The next section, he speaks to the servants, and then he speaks to the masters. The very fact that Paul addresses the one under authority shows that he regards the one under authority as having dignity and moral agency. We're like, well, duh, yeah, of course, everyone has moral agency and dignity. But that was not a given in the ancient world. If you read any of the writings of the, the Greeks and the Romans, they did not have children. Children did not matter to them. They would not give the time of day to children. They, they, they didn't care. In fact, in the Roman system... The father, the paterfamilias, had complete and absolute control over his children, not just when they lived at home, but even when they were married. A a father had absolute control over his son even after he was married. A father could legally divorce the husband and the wife. He had that level of control. He could put his children in chains and send them in the field to work. And if he didn't like what they were doing, he he could demand their execution. When a baby was born in in Greek and Rome, if the father looked at it and was like, "Mm, I didn't want a girl, I wanted a boy, he could take that child and dump it at the city dump and let it die. By the way, it was early Christians who would go to the city dump and would rescue those babies. Uh, We think that the abortion industry is bad. Ancient Rome had straight-up infanticide, uh, not just before birth but even after birth. Christians have long cared for the weak and the vulnerable. That's unchanged. So when Paul comes along and says, obey your parents, okay, he's saying something the culture would have agreed with. But when he says, obey in the Lord, for this is right, he's not just saying because mom and dad are stronger and they have complete control over you, but he's appealing to something completely different. This is not merely cultural. This is creational. This is transcendent. And then when he has his word to fathers, this would have absolutely flabbergasted an ancient audience. Don't provoke them to anger. To a world where send them in chains to the field, make them work, sell them into slavery if you want. We don't care. Don't provoke them to anger. In a world where it was, man, if you want to, if you want to have your son scourged with a cat of nine tails, go for it. It says, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is countercultural then, and it is countercultural now. Parenting is not to be determined by the latest whims of culture. I think way too many parents have a parenting philosophy that is kind of a golden corral philosophy. Here's what I mean. You go down the, you know, down the buffet line and you get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then you get your ice cream and you throw all the sprinkles in it and you try a little bit of bacon. And so you've got a little bit of Bible, a little bit of you know, what you grew up with, a little bit of Jordan Peterson and a little bit of the latest book that you picked up and a little of this and a little of that. and a late, Something I heard on TikTok and something I picked up on a mom, mom blog and then something that I, I heard from a friend you know, in the, at school who was telling me what she's trying and is a hodgepodge of all these different ideas that's not ultimately rooted in scripture. We get here a pretty comprehensive vision for how we are to parent. So this passage is like an accordion that just opens up with truth. It's like something that at first glance is small, but then you zoom in like a Google Earth and you realize, man, there's a whole lot more here then initially meets the eye. It's like uh, something you look at under the microscope, you're like, oh yeah, there's just some stuff in that water, and you look under the microscope, and there's a bunch there. So let's dive in with these 10 principles for parenting. To God's glory, yes, even in the year 2023. The first principle from verse 1 is pretty apparent. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. I'm going to call this the authority principle. Paul is assuming that God has given parents authority over children. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell the children to obey By the way, that's a stronger word than what was given to the wives. Wives are to rank under. 
Here, children are commanded to obey. Nowhere does the New Testament say, wives, obey your husbands. You know, just whatever they tell you. But that's more, it's more of a, a submission to authority. This here is a command that you obey your parents. It's presupposing that parents are giving direction, that parents have authority that they are carrying out. Now, this is a word that's needed for today where in Paul's day, the danger was authority that was being abused. Today, it is authority that is being unused. Today, it's parents who are simply relinquishing their authority and their responsibility and saying, you know what, I'm just going to send the kids to school and whatever happens, happens. I'm going to give them a smartphone. Whatever happens, happens. They can do what they want and and hopefully everything turns out okay. God calls parents to exercise their authority. Now, why do we need authority? Why is it that God says, okay, I want husbands to lead their homes. I want parents to lead their children. Servants are to submit to their masters. Romans 13, you should submit to government. Why is it that there's a need for authority? Let me tell you, the reason we need authority is because of sin. That's why we need authority. Parents are in this place of authority. Children must obey them. That's what God calls children to do. So why does God do this? Because we come into this world pre-programmed to resist all external authority. Like, that's just, that's just kind of our default setting. Now, it's not the way we were originally created, but because of the fall, because of Adam's sin, we come into this world saying, me and my and mine, and I want to do what I want to do. Children come into this world, as you all know, seeking to rule themselves. And by the way, all of us have that same impulse. This is not something that stops when they you know, when they graduate high school. This is the essence of sin, beloved. This is, this is what sin is, is I want to do what I want to do even if God tells me not to. I want to do what I want to do even if some authority tells me not to. I want to go 80 even if the sign says 25. With a kid, I wanna, I'm going to eat chocolate rather than my peas, and I don't want anyone telling me otherwise. What is ultimately going on there is a battle for authority. What is ultimately going on there is who is going to be in charge. Is it going to be the self-willed sinner? Or is it going to be the God-ordained authority? In other words, daily fights about nap times or meal menus or when teenagers come along about like curfews and who you're going to hang out with and what kind of technology you're going to get. Ultimately, those are not battles about diets, right? They're not ultimately about like, hey, the American Medical Association says that I need to sleep eight hours. That's not what this is ultimately about. It's ultimately about authority, It's ultimately about the right of someone outside of me to direct me. So children obey your parents is not just advice to help society work. Like, hey, we need children to obey parents so we can have a well-ordered society. And, you know, no, this is ultimately theological. Because the ultimate authority is God. All authority comes from him, Romans 13. There's There's no power but that which comes from God, whether that's in the government or in the home. So parents, when you establish your and exercise your authority, you're doing gospel work. You're helping a child break free from the illusion and the lie that he or she's in charge. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, fundamentally you come to God recognizing he's God and I am not. And that begins in the home, that recognition is, I thought I was the center of the universe and everything revolved around me, this whole home and the schedules and everything. And parents are supposed to come along and begin to break that illusion in the hearts of their children, which is preparing them to receive the gospel. So what's the basis of authority? Children, obey your parents and the Lord because your parents are always right. It doesn't say for they are right. It says for this is right. Children obeying the parents in the Lord is right, it is in accordance with reality, it is in accordance with God's natural law. We're making a big mistake if we assume that parental authority is an unlimited right to control our kids. I'm in charge and I'm going to just keep you under control. No, the reason children must obey is because of God. You see how this is different than just sort of a 1950s mentality where you know you get, get, a, get a flat top and dad tells you what to do and you don't question him and yes sir and yes ma'am and you're, you're, you're seen and, and not heard and This is rooted in God. Parents are to be the visible agents of God's invisible authority. Parenting is not about ownership or control. It's about mediating God's authority. It's about parents standing in saying, I'm not telling you to do this because this is what I want. I'm telling you to do this This is because what God wants. means parents, you need to know what God wants to be able to direct your kids into that. Authority, all authority is rooted in God's created order. It's rooted in his divine plan. It's about representing God to your children. It's about children being able to look into your face and your heart and to see a faint reflection of God in their lives. 
By the way, does that not change the way that we are to exercise authority? And by the way, this is true of any authority. This is is true about authority in the workplace, in in government, uh, in, in marriage. It is to represent God. What is his fatherly authority like? I would encourage you to read through Ephesians this afternoon. Look at the places everywhere where Father is mentioned. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I bow the knee to the God and Father. Like, what is God's fatherhood like? That is what our fatherhood, our parenting is to look like. We're going to be God's agents, God's instruments, God's representatives. The basis for our authority is not our bigger size. It's not the fact that our kids depend on us. It's not the fact that we provide for them. It's not... Well, you need to do what I say because I, that food you're about to eat, I pro- no, it's because God has put us in that place. So the exercise of authority, children obey your parents, means this is something that's active and not just theoretical. If authority is about representing God's rule, then that means, parents, we do not actually possess any independent authority of ourselves. This means we don't just say, do this because I said so, but do this because what I am telling you is right and it is for your good. Parenting is ultimately not about you. I think too often parents become discouraged. Um, I've seen this and frustrated and embarrassed because ultimately what they're trying to do in their parenting is enhance their own reputation. I want kids that will make me look good. I want kids who will sort of fulfill my need for affirmation and show to everyone, look at how good my parenting is. Growing up, we used to go to these homeschool conferences, and they would bring up these sort of picture-perfect families where all the kids were very obedient and often wearing matching clothes, which I don't know what that was about. And they would sing, and they would have it all together, and, and it was sort of the idea was like, you want your kids to be like this. And I wonder if how much of that appeal was appeal to sinful pride to say, hey, your kids there are to burnish your reputation. It's like the, you know, the Little League, I brought this up a couple weeks ago, but like the, the parent in the Little League stands who's vicariously living through his kid's success or failure. He's screaming at his kid, choke up and don't choke up and blah, blah, blah. What's going on there is it's not really about the kid enjoying Little League. That's about dad looking good. So people will be like, man, he, man the kid got his great Little League skills from his dad. Like I'm, I'm impressed with that. If we're representing God, it's not about us. It's about him. We're stewards. We're ambassadors not kings. We're instruments, not the conductor. And before I move off from this, authority cannot change the heart of children. Authority can't change anybody's heart. Only God can change heart. Only God can guarantee salvation. Now, I know Proverbs 22, 6 is train up your children in the way they should go. When they're old, they'll not depart from it. That is not a promise of perfect outcomes if we do everything just right. That's a general promise that you train your kids. Generally, they stay on the direction that you send them. But there's not a perfect formula to guarantee every kid's going to make it to heaven and be perfect and holy. On the other side, God's given us authority, then it would be sinful to surrender it. Too too often, parents are willing to surrender their authority to the whim of the child. They're willing to cave to the smallest amount of cultural pressure. Um, Now, you're saying, what, what on earth, what right do you have, Sam, to get up here and preach this? I don't. Um, I've got a one-year-old, so I'm not experienced. Don't come to me for, like, parenting advice. I'm simply preaching what God's word. God's word is true, by the way, no matter who says it. All right, this is true even if I don't have tons of experience yet. Like, 20 years from now, I might have more wisdom. Right now, I've got God's word, and that's what I'm declaring. But this would suggest to me, children, obey your parents. Means that parents establish their authority early. You don't wait until the kid's 13, and then now we're going to have the authority battle. Hey, it's too late probably at that point. Fight the battles early when the issues are small. Fight the battle when the issue is eating the peas, not when the issue is doing drugs. Aim for the heart, because true obedience biblically flows from a submissive heart. God's called you to be a parent, to lead the home. So the authority principle... We're representing God to do his will. We're representing God, his authority. doesn't mean we're always going to get it right. doesn't mean that if you do this right, everything's going to turn out. Uh, every heart is ultimately responsible before God. But we represent God. Now, let me give you a second principle to balance out that first one. And we're going to call this the relationship principle. And I think we tend to sort of get on a, a teeter-totter between, you know, the parenting books. Some are like, oh, nurture and relationship and just hang out with your kids. And the other one's like, oh, you need to lay down the law and have boundaries. It's interesting to me, Paul and the, the writers of Scripture present both. Now, where am I getting relationship? 
Notice these words we read over. Children obey your parents. Those words, children and parents, those are relationship words. Uh, Paul could have used a couple of different words for children. He uses the word that emphasizes relationship over status. Just a mild distinction, but it's assuming a kind of relationship. Now, later on where we have verse 4, bring them up in the nurture, the admonition of the Lord. That's, a, that's assuming there's communication and there's conversation going on. You read the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is basically a, a father giving counsel to his son. My son, you know, follow my wisdom and take heed to my words. There's relationship that's going on. And ultimately, the model of parenting is God himself. So we pray the Lord's Prayer. What are the first words? Our Father, which art in heaven. Romans 8 says we come to God and we cry, Abba, Father. There's a real relationship where he speaks to us and, and, and we to him. There's, there's a real relationship with warmth and provision and care. We give us this day our daily bread. He provides for us. He cares for us in a way that makes even the kindest father, even the most loving mother, look heartless by comparison. That's our model, is God himself. So this relationship principle based on who God is, from eternity past, God is Father. Father is not some kind of role that God sort of took on himself when like, he started redeeming sinners in time. From eternity past, he is the Father of God the Son. Not that the Son has a beginning, but the Son exists eternally in a relationship with the Father in this kind of filial kind of relationship. We sang this morning, this is my father's world. What an interesting juxtaposition, because we might say this is my creator's world. But the creation is the act of God as a father. It is an act of generosity. It is an act of of abundance in creating the world. The, The one who rules this world is my dad. The one who rules over this creation is my father in heaven, the one to whom I cry, Abba, Father. And by the way, if you're not a Christian today, you don't have that kind of relationship. And if you don't have that kind of relationship, you're not a Christian. To be a Christian is to have the father-son relationship with God Almighty through Christ. So back to children. If God's our model, then part of our parenting is not just authority, here's the rules, here's the boundaries, God's called me to be an instrument of grace in your life, but it is relationship. It is about relationship, a human relationship and a divine relationship. You see, God's ordained the home not only as a place of authority, but a place of love and affection. It goes all the way back to God founding the home. What, you know what the foundation of the home is? Back to Genesis where God makes Adam and Eve and says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. There is affection and real love and warmth and emotion that overflows into the ways that we relate to our children. So don't pit authority and relationship against each other. They go hand in hand. Our Father relationship, which art in heaven, authority. Our Father, he invites us to come into his presence. He fellowships with us, instructs us, provides for us. He beckons us to sit in his lap, as it were. He consoles and comforts and counsels and confronts and convicts. He directs and he disciplines. He loves and he leads now, to be sure, that relationship's going to look different in different stages of, of, of kids' lives. You know, when they come home as, a, as an infant from the hospital, like, you're keeping them alive. And then later on, the relationship is sort of, you're, you're, you're giving orders, don't put your finger in the light socket. I've already done that. Actually, Timothy was had a nail that he was, and a, sort of jump out and tackle him out of the way, and he's... You're sort of a dictator at that point, but as the kids get older, you become... More, more of a coach who's giving encouragement and ultimately becoming a friend. That should change. That relationship should not look the same when the kid is 20 as it did when he was 5. A relationship is about dialogue. It's about conversations. It's about shared experiences. It's about being at the Little League games. It's about taking the camping trips. It's about having ongoing conversation about what matters. It's open dialogue about the things that Proverbs talks about. You, you read the opening chapters of Proverbs, and you might be stunned about the kinds of things that a, a, a father should talk to his sons about. You're talking about the law of God. You're talking about theology. You're talking about wisdom. You're talking about friendships. You're talking about sex. You're talking about relationships. You're talking about money. I like what Paul Tripp says. He says, parenting is basically an endless conversation. It's not just, okay, we had one conversation, one really awkward conversation with our kids, like we got that out of the way, but an ongoing conversation where you're having that dialogue. But Ephesians 6, children obey your parents' relationship, and then there's this phrase, in the Lord. 
What's that doing? Some might say, well, that's meaning you just have to obey your, your parents if they're in the Lord, if they're Christians. If you don't have Christian parents, you can disobey. No, no, that's not what it's saying. In the Lord is modifying obey. The obedience is rendered in the context of a relationship with the Lord. Now, if you read Ephesians and trace out everywhere where that term, the Lord, is used, it refers always to Jesus. There's this vertical relationship that is being developed between the child and Jesus. That little phrase is very, very important. It's not just obey, but obey in relationship to your relationship in the Lord. It's not just obedience to mom and dad simply because they're mom and dad, but it's obedience that flows out of a growing relationship with God in Christ. The little bundle you bring home from the hospital, maybe he's a towering teenager now, isn't just a reflection made in your image, like, oh, look, he's got my nose. No, he is a worshiper made in the image of God. He's not just an extraordinary miracle of physical life. He is a worshiper. The the most important thing about any child of any human being is that they're made to know and to worship God. That's true about your neighbor, that's true about your co-worker, and that's true about your two-year-old. We're made to know and worship God. In our brokenness, where do we turn? In our sin, where do we turn? We turn in on ourselves. We worship ourselves. That's true of all of us. And it's your mission as a parent to point them away from themselves to Christ. It's not enough to just deal with external behavior. We've got to get down to how sin relates to the relationship with God. In other words, you know, your toddler bonks another toddler over the head with a Tonka truck. And, Don't do that. That's bad. But the real issue there is rebellion against God. Is a innate selfishness, selfishness in the heart that says he took the, took the Tonka truck that I wanted. The real issue there is worship. It's not enough to just deal with the behavior. We've got to get to the heart. If we treat only behavior issues but ignore the vertical relationship of, with God, all we're doing is treating symptoms. We're masking the disease and ignoring the cure, which is the relationship with Jesus. So the relationship principle tells us that our children are made for relationship with mom and dad, that horizontal human relationship, but more importantly, the vertical relation with God. And this is not just true of kids. This doesn't like, okay, stop when you're 18 now. You no longer need a relationship with God. This is true of all of us. All of us were made for a relationship with God. Which means, again, in the words of Paul Tripp, you're more like your children than you are unlike them. Right? All the problems we have, we're maybe a little more dignified about it. We still throw our temper tantrums. We just do it differently. Ultimately, the issue is a relationship with our Creator that needs to be made right through Christ. A third principle that this text shows us is what I'm going to call the law principle. Verse 2, honor thy father and mother. Okay, Paul is now quoting Scripture. What's he quoting? He's quoting the fifth commandment from the Ten Commandments. So, there, you know, no other gods before me. Don't make graven images and remember the Sabbath day and don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then the first of the second table, so the first four commandments deal with the relationship with God. And then the second six of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with one another. The first of those, of those commandments is honor your father and mother because the relationships, that, that the relationships that exist in the home are foundational for all other relationships. They're foundational for all of society. So Paul is quoting from the law. He's saying, hey, God said this all the way back in Exodus chapter 20, all the way back in, in Deuteronomy, where the law gets repeated. Honor thy father and thy mother. Both mom and dad. Not just dad, not just mom, not just pick which parent you prefer, but mom and dad together as a team. You're gonna, they're, they're both to be given honor. Honor is a broader word than obedience. Um, it captures more than just obey. If we reduce honor to obey, we're, we're, we're missing the, the, the importance of what's going on. Jesus, for example, applied this commandment the, the, to tell the Pharisees, hey, you guys have your rules that break the commandments of God. What you're, you're doing, you're supposed to be caring for mom and dad when they're getting older. And instead, you're saying, oh, I gave all the money to the temple. It's all sort of devoted to the temple. You're calling it Corbin, and you're not honoring mother and father. Honoring mom and dad is more than just rendering obedience you know, when, you're, when, you're, when you're in elementary school. It's more than just respectfully hearing their counsel when you're in high school. It extends all the way to caring for them when they're older. It is ensuring that their needs are met, not abandoning them so you can go fulfill your dreams. So honor is a broader term that is application in sort of every stage of life. It's going to look different depending on our life stage. 
It's about sort of showing respect. It's about recognizing the, the position that God has given to them. Honor father and mother, which to the children sitting in the church in Ephesus meant obey. Okay, you're, 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 you're elementary age, you're eight years old, obey mom and dad. But what I want to just step back and deal with is the fact that Paul is quoting the law. He's quoting from the Mosaic law and making an application in the context of the new covenant. Okay, so we're going to sort of go theology, sort of theology sidetrack here for a minute. So everybody put your theological thinking caps on for a second. This reason for obedience is the Ten Commandments given to Israel. Honoring, of course, is about more than just reluctant obedience and huffily stomping down the hallway to clean up the room. Uh, it's about having a heart that is rightly attuned to God-given authority. But here's the point I want to sort of delve into. We understand that we are not under law, but under grace, in the words of Romans 6. We understand that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Like all of the Ten Commandments, all of the Mosaic law, Jesus has fulfilled it's as binding on us, the Old Testament law is as binding on us today as Christians as the laws of England that existed in 1775 are, as, are binding on us as Americans. Like we're under a different law, a different administration. We're in the new covenant under the law of Christ. But here's the thing. Of those Ten Commandments, nine of the Ten Commandments get repeated in the New Testament. And this is one of them. Jesus repeats it. Paul repeats it. This is still binding to us even though we are under the new covenant. Interesting how Paul uses the law. When we become believers in Jesus, we get a new heart. A new heart that delights to obey God and to follow his law. We're driven not by the threats of punishment, but by the power of the gospel. So here's what I'm saying. When it comes to God's law, the commands that he gives to us, they are binding on us as Christians. Understanding the Old Testament's fulfilled, but where it's repeated in the New Testament, it's binding on us. There's stuff that God commands us to do. I say that because there's people running around today who are saying, never use law in parenting, only use grace, only preach the gospel to your kids, and, and until they're regenerate and have a new heart, you can't tell them anything to do. It's baloney. Honor father and mother. The authority that God gives to parents is there regardless of the spiritual condition of the children. It's okay to use the law. Now, there's other uses of the law in the Bible. Uh, Christian theologians have divided it into three uses of, of, the, of the moral law, of those laws that get repeated in the New Testament. One of them is the one I just mentioned, the normative, the moral use, instructing us as Christians how we are to live. The main use of the law in the New Testament is what has been called pedagogical. Here's what it means. The law shows me that I need a Savior. Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin except by the law. It's the law that sort of is the, is the black light that reveals the mess that is in my heart. It's the law of God that reveals I have fallen short of the standard of his righteousness. You see, I can think that I'm a pretty good person until I, until I measure my life up against the standard that God has given Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. In other words, don't lie. I'm, I'm a good person. Have you ever told a lie before? Well, yeah, I've told uh, a lie here or there, you know. Okay, what do we call people who tell lies? Liars. What does Revelation 21.8 say? All liars go to the lake of fire. Yikes. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's another one of the commandments that's repeated in Old and New Testament. In fact, Jesus ups the ante by saying, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed heart-level adultery with her. You look at a woman, you look at a, look at a man, you look at someone else and lust after them. You're guilty of adultery in God's eyes. Standard, I measure my life and I'm realizing, uh-oh, we can go on. No other gods before me. And yet you're, oh, I, really, I really love my hobby more than I love worshiping. Or I, I love doing what I want to do more than what God tells me to do. Or don't take God's name in vain. Using God's name as a byword or throwing the term Christian around while you do things that are profoundly unchristian. We go commandment by commandment by commandment. We find out that we strike out on all of them. By the law is the knowledge of sin. But the law does something else in revealing sin. I'll give you this example. You see a sign on the wall that says, wet paint, do not touch. And immediately there's an impulse in your heart to say, do they really mean that? I'm going to just kind of come by and touch as I, as, I, as, I, as I pass by. Or there'll be a sign by a fountain that says, do not throw coins into the fountain. Guarantee you... There's going to be coins in that fountain because there's something in the fallen human heart that sees a law and wants to rebel. Now, what does this have to do with parenting? We take the law of God. We lay it before our children on one level because 
God commands it. But on another level, without law, no child will ever realize that he's a sinner in need of a savior. I remember as a kid praying before meals, God, help me to be good. I hated getting in trouble. God, help me to be good. And day after day, I would fail to be good. God, help me not to get in trouble today. And day after day, I would get in trouble, not because my parents had draconian, impossible-to-meet standards, because I was a sinner. And God, in his grace, used that awareness of my failure and my badness and my rebellion to bring me to saving faith in Jesus. So if there are no standards in the home, chances of your children realizing that they need a Savior on a human level are pretty slim. So God, the, the law, honor father and mother By all means, use the law of God to expose and to reveal sin. Another use of the law, theologians call this the civil use, and it means this, that it restrains restrains man's evil hearts. God says, thou shalt not kill, and when that's sort of backed up by the sword of the state, it keeps me from killing people who who cut me off in the road because I'm like, oh, I don't want to get lethal injection, right? And so God uses the law that even though my heart may want to sin, it keeps my hand from carrying out what my heart desires. God, in his kindness, uses the law to restrain sin. The same is true in the home. Even if your child's not a believer in Jesus, they will be helped by living life within limits. There need to be boundaries in the home. In an external and earthly way, following God's law can keep you from ruining your life. Kids need boundaries to keep them away from cliffs. Tracks need, trains need tracks to run on. Roads need guardrails when there's a, a drop-off. And that's what the law does. So those are the three things that the law of God does, that we, the ways we should be using it in the home. Now, there's something that the law doesn't do. Yes, it might expose or reveal my sin. Yes, it might reveal the worst impulses of my heart. Yes, it may show me the way God wants me to live. But there's something the law cannot do. There's something that rules and regulations and authority cannot do for your child. It cannot save. The law cannot change a heart. Romans 8 verse 4 says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. No rules can make a heart love God. No rules can make a heart love righteousness. No number of rules can make your toddler love his sibling as himself. No number of rules can make your child love God and believe in Jesus and trust in him. Rules are incapable of doing that. There's a real, real danger in parenting to say, I'm going to get the big two-by-four of the law of God and the rules and regulations that I add to it and try to sort of beat my child into submission to God. It's not going to work. In fact, it will create resentment. I've seen it. Kids who grew up in good homes, who loved Jesus, who had parents who well-intentionedly, if that's a word, had lots and lots and lots of rules and lots and lots and lots of standards, and the kids eventually threw their hands up and said, I can't do this, and walked away from any connection whatsoever to the faith. Some of the most pagan people I know were kids who grew up in conservative churches with godly parents who in a well-intentioned way tried to use the law to create love for God. It's a sad thing. So the law cannot, cannot change the heart. If rules could save, if laws could regenerate, Jesus would not have had to die. You see how the gospel is so relevant to this? See how relevant this is to grown-ups? You might be, you might say, I'm 103 years old and I'm here today. This is still relevant for us. The law cannot make you a Christian. Rule-keeping cannot save. Good works cannot bring you into a right relationship with God. Only the grace of God can do that. Now, don't forget that reality when it comes to parenting. We sort of put the gospel, I know, I know what the gospel is, Jesus saves sinners, and then we come to our parenting and we're like, now I'm going to try to do it with all of these regulations and curfews and, and penalties. Now, I want to conclude with what I'm going to call the promise principle. Verse 2, honor father and mother. And then Paul adds as way of sort of parenthetical comment, which is the first commandment with promise? Now, here's the promise, that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long on the earth. So he's quoting from slightly different than the language you'll find in Exodus and in Deuteronomy because he's quoting from a... Uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which took a few liberties here or there, but he's still quoting it as God's word. Uh, You don't have to have a perfect translation to have God's perfect word. But he's quoting from that saying there's a a promise that's attached to this. You read through the Ten Commandments, and there's sort of a general principle with the Second Commandment that God will judge certain people who won't hold, he'll hold certain people guiltless, who take his name in vain, and 
But this is the first one that has a specific promise of the Ten Commandments. First commandment with a specific promise that it may go well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Now, the way it's rendered in the Old Testament, you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you. Paul takes that last part and leaves it off because he's now saying this is not just about Israel in the land of Palestine. This is true of anybody who's walking on this earth. We're talking about earthly blessing. We're talking about common grace blessing in this world. Generally speaking, kids who grow up learning to obey mom and dad and respecting authority, even if they never come to faith in Jesus, lead healthier and safer and live longer lives. It's generally true. It's said that one of the greatest predictors of of a life of crime or ending up in prison is not having a dad in the home and therefore not having that kind of fatherly authority. It's It's just generally true. Not always, but generally. Generally true, children who learn to be respectful and learn to have a right relationship with authority are less likely to have run ins with the law, right? Are less likely to have issues with authority later on in their lives. There's this general promise that's true for almost all the time. But think about this for a second. You're a child, you're sitting in the church at Ephesus, which, by the way, isn't it interesting that Paul can say, children, and there are actually children who are in the church. Right? There are children who are being brought to hear the word of God, and they were sitting there as the letter to the Ephesians is read. You come into the first church of Ephesus, and today they're like, hey guys, we got a letter from Paul, and they read all six chapters, and that's sort of your church service that day. And the kids, maybe your eyes are sort of just glazing over all this stuff about husbands and wives, and they say, children, and you're like, oh, this is for me. God intends for families to worship together. That's a good thing. That's a right thing. Not to say that children's ministries are bad and sinful. They, they have their place. Families being together, that's assumed in this text. And he says, here's a promise. Now, here's the deal with a promise. A promise is only useful to motivate obedience if the promise is believable and believed. Right? I say, hey, if you, if you come to church today, I'm going to give everybody who comes to church today a Lamborghini. And you're like, ha, that's a good one. Like, that's not going to motivate you to come to church today. Unless I have a parking lot full of Lamborghinis out here and I'm a well-known Lamborghini dealer who's known to give these things out to people I like. Promises are only useful to motivate obedience if they are believed. Now, this is not a bribe. This is not a parental bribe. of. We've, we've all seen the, the battle in the, in the toy aisle in Walmart. Toddlers throwing a fit. I want the truck. And so the parents are like, fine. I'll buy you the truck to make you stop yelling. That's bribery, right? That's not, that's not a good way to parent, bribing and, and coercing and, and guilting. We're not talking, this is not divine bribery where God's like, long life if you obey, you know, obey and I'll, I'll give you this little treat over here. This is more of a promise that is woven into the fabric of reality as God has designed it. But my point here is promises presuppose faith, which means the parenting task, beloved, is more than just make sure the kids have a safe place to live and you go into work and provide for them and you give them some boundaries and you make sure they don't go out and run down the middle of the street. It's more than making sure that your kids don't stick fingers into light sockets and drink bleach. It's about calling them to faith. The promise principle has baked into it the call to faith, the call to believe God's word is true, to say God's promise I believe God's promise here is true, and so I'm going to act in accordance with it. That's faith. And it starts when they're little, honor father and mother, because God has a promise. Do you believe God's promise? Then do what God says. comes on later on in life. God promises that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you believe God's promises? And it's this teaching them to live in faith, which is absolutely essential if they're going to make it to heaven. Because the only way a sinner can be saved is by trusting in the finished work of Jesus and relying in the promise that Jesus has made. So promise presupposes faith. God's grace is the only power that can change a heart. And as parents, our task is to point them to God's grace and to God's promises over and over and over again. And point them to the promises of God's grace as sinners who also need it. I, I, I don't come to Timothy as, Timothy, you're a sinner and I'm not. No, I'm a sinner too. And the reason you need this forgiveness is because you're just like me. Our goal as Christian parents is not to raise kids who are nice. 
Our goal as Christian parents is not to raise kids who say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. It's not to raise legalists and Pharisees who are great at externals. It's to raise children who love God with all of their heart, who love God with all of their soul, who love God with all of their mind, who love God with all of their strength, who've been granted a new heart that wants to obey God. Our goal is to raise Christians who are keenly aware of their sin, requires the law, and are fully trusting in Jesus and him alone, requires promise. As we start digging into this text, we're seeing there's a whole lot more here. A whole lot more here of of eternal and lasting and transcultural validity. Yes, there's a lot of good things you can learn from a, from a parenting blog or from a podcast, from some of those books that are, that are for sale on Amazon, not, not all of them, maybe not even most of them. There's stuff we can learn from older parents who have like, hey, I learned this trick to getting your, your kid to sleep. Like, by all means, let's, let's glean all we can, but let's make the foundation of what we do in building our homes be the word of God. Now, those of you who are grandparents, don't just stand back and watch your kids make the same awful mistakes that you made. You're like, oh, man, they're, yep, they're just like me. Tell them. Go, go to them and say, I'm, I'm, I tried that. That's not a good way to do it. Let me show you a better, a better way. Within the church family, Titus 2 says, older men, older women, teach the younger men, teach the younger women. Uh, it's scary being a parent, right? Um, any age, it's terrifying in the year 2023 with all of the complexities of the internet and transgender and confusion and all of these things going on. We need your help. Um, Hillary Clinton was dead wrong when she said it takes a village. But I think the scripture would sustain the idea that it takes a church. It takes a family and it takes a church family surrounding families and praying and supporting and encouraging. Now, my final, my final plea to you today Everything I've said has been about assuming the gospel and this relationship that we're modeling with God. If you're here today and you do not know for sure that your sins are forgiven, you do not know God as Father, I would plead with you. I would urge you with all of my heart to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus today. Law can't save you. Only Jesus saves. Father, Help us as parents to trust you.